Hey there, welcome to Hunt Gather Talk. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and today I want to talk about one of the dirty, sweaty, unthankful parts of hunting, fishing, and foraging, and that is scouting. Scouting is the it's the S word for a lot of us. It is that process by which you find your spots. And the process can be very, very long and very, very expensive uh, if you're like me and have to drive hours and hours and hours and spend hours and hours either on your feet or in the truck looking for the right spot for X, Y, or Z. The reason I want to talk about it right now is because of several things. One, uh, I just did a lot of scouting over the last few days. And two, it's kind of that time of year. And what do I mean by scouting? Well, one of the reasons why you or anyone else would pay for a guide is because the guide has done the scouting, not you. So what you're doing is you're paying money, essentially, to remunerate the guide for having done all of that scouting. And I don't think everybody really truly realizes that when you hire a guide for hunting or fishing but that's really what you're paying for. You're paying for the placement, you're paying for that guide's expertise, and you're paying for the equipment. And all three of them are vital parts of that whole equation. But when you're by yourself, and let's face it, I don't care how many deer or fish or mushrooms or whatever it is, I don't care how many that you get or how big the deer was with a guide, you will always be more proud of the thing, whether it's a fish or a deer or an animal or whatever, whatever, that you found and you spotted and you dispatched if it's alive or picked if it's, you know, if it's a plant or a mushroom and that you brought home. That's that, that self-contained self-sufficiency where it's just you or you and someone you love, you know, not a professional, not someone that you're paying money to handle. That experience beats pretty much everything in my mind. I mean, not maybe it's not everybody, but to my mind, I've shot a lot of pigs and I've shot a bunch of deer. The deer and the pigs that I remember the most are the ones where it was just me or it was just me and a friend. And the reason is because if I found the spot, if it was me who decided I'm going to set up here or set up there, and wait and find the animal or wander or wander endlessly in the mountains, which is what we do here in California and in the West. And then I spotted the deer or I spotted the pig. That's something special. And it's not just me. If you look back at pretty much every hunter-gatherer culture that we've ever been able to study, and admittedly, it's not that many because we farmers have pushed out hunter-gatherers for close to 10,000 years. I mean, it's the whole you know, Esau versus Jacob story back in the Bible. But what we have found with the hunter-gatherer cultures that we know is that it's not so much honor and glory to the person who kills the game. It's honor and glory to the person who has first spotted the game. And it's that ability to find game. Now, now part of that is scouting, and that's what I want to talk about. So let me put you in my position yesterday. So yesterday happened to be April 5th. And April 5th is a very early date for us here in this part of California for springtime foraging. It happens to be the beginning of turkey season, so I have my shotgun in the truck. And I went up the hill, 
off of Highway 50, which is the main artery where I live, and started to check out my spots. Well, why would I even bother this early? Well, here's the thing. When you're scouting, especially if you're a forager, weather matters. You know, if you're looking for deer habitat or turkey habitat, or if you're on the water and you're looking for places where fish might be, those tend to be static. They are, there's habitat that you can look for, and that habitat's not necessarily going to change in a year. You know, it will over time, but year to year, you know, if you have a fresh clear cut that's got a lot of fresh browse in the forest, you know, so lots of new seedlings and saplings and that sort of thing that deer really like to eat, well, yeah, there's a spot that you're going to kind of check it out. You know, you're immediately going to go there. It's the habitat. Well, the problem with foraging is, especially in a place like California, and this is true in many other places, is that weather matters. So it's been hot. It's been wet. And I know everything down here in the valley where I live has been going gangbusters a little bit early. And if that's the case, well, damn, I mean, maybe something's happening up there, up up the hill that I, you know, you don't know until you go. And that's the thing. You don't know until you go. So I went and I have a big dinner planned for later this week. It's based off of uh, Rene Redzepi's Noma. Uh, if you're not familiar with Rene Redzepi and, and his restaurant Noma, it's in Copenhagen and it was voted best restaurant in the world any number of times. He's one of the founders of the New Nordic Movement, which is to say uh, <laughs> Scandinavian food well beyond rutabagas and, and herring and, and codfish. It's, it's a brilliant use of scarce foraged and wild ingredients uh, in a masterful way. And, and it's just very impressive. Well, why do I mention this? I mention this because one of the big things that I'm going to do in this dinner is involving spruce tips or fur tips. They're, they're more or less identical. And what that is, is it's the new green growth off of a fir or a spruce tree. And you use this in various ways. Well, why would you want to eat a pine tree? Uh, it's the old, you'll give us ever eat a pine tree. Most parts are edible. And if you're old enough to get that, you you get extra points because it's from an old grape nuts ad from the 1970s. But he's right. Yule was right. Most parts of conifers are indeed edible in some way, shape, or form. And the the new green growth of the of pine or spruce or fir has less of a turpentiny quality and more of a citrus quality. Well, you might ask why, and the reason is because they are loaded with vitamin C. They're also pretty. They're that new spring green that everybody loves, and it's a, I think we're kind of hardwired to look for it in the spring. And they have a neat texture and flavor, and they're just a all-around good ingredient. I mean, I like to call it the rosemary of the north. So I needed it, and I needed a fair bit because I'm cooking for 50 people. Well, they're not there. And I'm, I was flummoxed. I'm like, what? <laughs> everything else seems to be going on. I mean, why are there no spruce tips? Why are there no fir tips? Where the hell are they? Well, that's why you scout. So I went looking, looking, looking. And I just didn't see any until I dipped down into this deep, moist canyon in El Dorado County, right on the American River. And, you know, I'm looking out of the truck on either side and like, no, 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 not even the cedars are going and the cedars tend to go first. And finally, I get right down at the river level and there are a couple of fir trees that have the new green growth. So here's a scouting tip that you're going to want to use. 
bring an altimeter. Now, you can have an altimeter app on your phone, but I like to buy the old pressure style altimeters. There's no batteries. There's no electric parts. There's, they always work. And as long as they're calibrated correctly, which you can do with a little dial on the back, I think they're like $20. And these altimeters, I stick one in my backpack and I just pull it out wherever I need to make a, an altitude check. And it is it never fails me. So as it turned out, that was 1,700 feet. I had no idea. I was really expecting everything to be going off at 3,000, even 4,000 maybe because it's been beautiful. It's been warm and it's been it's been rainy. There's, there's kind of a, the whole cocktail ready for this, but nada. Oh, well, you know, I mean, so that's one of those aspects of you don't know until you go. But as a forager, you're also looking for everything else. And I figured, okay, well, right around the same time and in the same spot that I get my spruce and fir tips, I find wild ginger. And wild ginger is a fantastic ingredient, especially in the West. And I will post in the show notes a uh, a whole scientific explanation of American wild gingers, which are not botanically related to the ginger you buy in the store, but they're very very edible and they are not toxic like some people would have you believe if they're used in a proper way. And uh, the article I'll post in the show notes will we'll go through that. But anyway, I'm looking for wild ginger because, you know, maybe I'd like to make a wild ginger ice cream for this Nordic dinner that I'm talking about. And I'm looking, looking, looking. And I, the first thing that strikes me in my spot is that, well, the undergrowth isn't really like that far along and that's weird and again it's just you know it's hot out you know it's sunny you know it's, everything should be here and i finally did find one patch of wild ginger that has just coming up so i'm thinking you know things are on their own schedule they don't care what the temperature is they don't care what time of year is maybe they run by light maybe they run by day length maybe they run by something else but I immediately just sort of made a mental note of it. And when I got home, I checked my journal. And here's another scouting tip. Keep a journal. You absolutely need to keep a journal of some sort. Now, I'm old school. I have a great many handwritten journals that detail really everything in my life, everything from events to writing down notes about experiences I have to lots and lots of cooking and recipe techniques and all that sort of stuff. But it also contains my foraging journal. And the foraging journal will tell me over time when things should appear. And so I went back home and I noticed, well, there it is. I'm normally picking fir tips and spruce tips in that place in May, not in the beginning of April. I don't know what got into me, maybe just the, the transient weather, but it was way too early. And I'd even picked some in June. And I had forgotten that. You just need to check your own records. And if you don't have records, then you just need to spend more and more and more time out there. But these are plants that I know where they are. I know where to go. And it's so there's, a, there's an element of mystery that has been taken out of it. And the only variable left is really when are they going to appear. And that is a fundamental thing about foraging for plants that you need to remember. They don't wait for you. They don't care about your schedule. They don't care if you're sick. They don't care if you're going to be on vacation. They're going to come out when they're going to come out. And if you don't want to miss them, you better be out there. And there are very specific and sometimes extraordinarily short times to get these things. Case in point, 
one of the things, you know, earlier this spring in March, I walk and walk and walk and walk and walk looking for a particular mushroom. And that mushroom is called Amanita villosa. And again, in the show notes, I'll give you a full detail about this particular mushroom, which only really lives in the West. So sorry, everybody else, but it's a Western mushroom that is fantastically delicious. Well, I put on a lot of miles looking for this mushroom because it's one of my favorite mushrooms to eat in the world. Well, I'm not necessarily just looking for the mushroom. I'm, I'm taking in my surroundings. And by taking in my surroundings, I see what everything else is doing. There's coyote mint that I'm looking for. There's edible bulbs that I'm looking for. There are other herbs and there are other indicators. Like I can see where the wild plums are at at this point. Now, it's way too early to harvest them, but I can see if it's going to be a good year or not. And how do you know that? Well, once the trees set fruit, you can never really tell by flowers, but once the trees set fruit, then you can get a pretty good idea of how the fruit is going to be. Now, it would take something like a hailstorm or something really dramatic to to damage the, the crop after that, as any farmer knows. But it's a really good indicator like, ah, oh, it's going to be a good plum year. And it is, thank God. But the other thing I noticed, and this is back to that got to be there at the precise moment thing, is that the bull pines, now they're gray pines, bull pines, digger pines, they're all sorts of, it's all the same tree. It's a it's another pine tree that's native to my area, but this is not restrictive of my area. This happens with every pine. They were just starting to set pollen. And so the deal is uh, pines have kind of a male and a female thing on them. And the pine pollen wafts off in the air. This is all, all kinds of conifers do this. And so they're pollinated by air and wind. And I just brushed past one of these things, and it billowed out a huge puff of bright yellow pollen. Like, really? Already? This, unlike the wild ginger and unlike the fur tips, was going off early. And if I had not been out there looking for the mushrooms, I would not have seen it. And so because I'm kind of that way, I pulled out a Ziploc bag that I happened to carry with me for this purpose and started harvesting pine pollen right then and there. I had no intention of doing it that day, but because I was out, because I was there precisely for that moment, I was able to do it. And I managed to get, I don't know, maybe a a little over a pint and a half, and which is a lot of pine pollen. Now, I know you're asking yourself, why on God's green acre are you going to be picking pine pollen. What's what are, what could you possibly do with it and aren't you allergic to it? The answer is no, actually. I did some research into this and as it happens, many 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 people who say they are allergic to pine pollen are not in fact allergic to pine pollen. They are allergic to something that occurs in nature at the same time that the pine pollen is coming off. So it looks like it's pine pollen that's causing it, but it's not actually pine pollen, which is good to know because I don't necessarily want to cook with something, especially for other people that they could be allergic to, right? That's no, that's no bueno. Well, why use it? Well, first of all, it is bright yellow and it contains a lot of micronutrients, uh, including a kind of a, a, a phytochemical testosterone, which is really interesting. Um, there are precursors to both the male hormone testosterone and the female hormone estrogen in a lot of plants and including there there's a whole regimens of phytoestrogens for women who are you know going through menopause to help ease that process well as far as i know the most common one for the male version of that is pine pollen 
And there are all kinds of freaky claims like, oh, it's going to make you strong. It's like plant Viagra and blah, 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 blah. That's, that's probably all horseshit because the most evidence that I have found is that, that that precursor to the testosterone hormone that's in the pine pollen doesn't actually – you don't absorb it. It just kind of goes right through you. Be that as it may, I don't use pine pollen for that. I use it as a kind of a quasi – wild saffron. Now, saffron, as you probably know, is an extremely expensive spice that you use to turn things yellow, and it's got a great aroma. Well, pine pollen doesn't have a ton of aroma, but it absolutely will turn things bright yellow. And I like that. It's kind of neat. Um, I use it for spätzle. I use it for pasta. I use it for breads, cakes. It's it's just a good ingredient to mix with baked goods. Now, the one thing that you might be thinking is, oh, I can make a sauce that, that won't turn yellow. But, well, it may or may not work because, weirdly, pine pollen is hydrophobic. Uh, if you if you pour it on water, it will float on the top and not really incorporate. So that's just a little tip. But I digress. Anyway, back to scouting, looking for mushrooms. This is the thing. If you want to find morels, or you want to find Amanita velosa or any mushroom for that matter, now we're getting more into the kind of scouting that you need to do for hunting and fishing because the mushrooms are not always going to be there. And even though you can go to a spot and you might see what looks like good habitat, they may not be there yet or you may have missed them. And this is the deep conundrum of a mushroom hunter. And it happened to me this week. So two years ago, we had a gigantic 97,000-acre forest fire called the King Fire. And the King Fire was largely ruled off-limits to foragers and everybody else when the morels were coming out last year. Now, the thing about Western burn morels is they typically are the best the first year after the fire. So the fire was in 2014. In the spring of 2015 was the best year for morels. However, on a good fire, you can continue to pick some morels in a, the second year and sometimes the third year, and in a very rare case, years after that. Like there's a the Angora fire up in, in Lake Tahoe. That one produced for many years after that, but we think that was because they were uh, logging the old dead burned areas, and that disturbance kept the morels coming up. So anyway... I had not actually, I didn't even bother to look last year because the rangers had, were keeping everybody out and I don't want to be hunter, angler, poacher, cook, you know. So I ignored it. This year, it will be different. So this year, I really wanted to get after it because the commercial pickers wouldn't be there and I, I could be a little bit more alone. And, and I don't really love hunting mushrooms with lots of other people, largely because I don't want to have to keep track of them. I want to be able to go where the spirit takes me and I know where I'm going. And I'm always thinking about where the other person is when I'm mushroom hunting, especially if I'm leading it because I, it just it gives me a lot of angst and it just it bothers me. So that's why I do most of my stuff alone. So I'm looking at Google Earth. I'm looking at trail maps. I'm looking at, you know, the incident map of the fire. And all of these are good tools to use when you are going to search for burn morels. And so I spend getting the car and getting the truck and drive uphill. And long story short, I drove for over 100 miles total distance in this burn. And I found two, two spots that had good habitat. Some were lightly burned and not really great, especially two years after. There was a fair bit of good habitat on private land, which I didn't know. I thought it was all in the National Forest. 
And then I finally found some spots that looked pretty good. And I got there and I started walking and it just didn't feel right. It felt too hot. Now, of course, the day was hot. So that's unusual for early April up there. But there was just nothing. And it was really disappointing. And this is one of those things that you have to get used to if you're scouting. Because you're going to go through a lot of that. I can't tell you how many miles I put on my truck every spring. And mind you, I've been in the same area of California for 12 years now. I can't tell you how many miles I put on. Hundreds and hundreds of miles on logging roads and back roads and this road and that road looking for habitat for both morels and for spring porcini, which don't show up until May or June. And it's just the way it is. It's just the way it is. Now, you can't walk it because there's no point. You know, all of these habitat spots are scattered. You can walk. I mean, I end up walking five or six miles each, each of those days, but you end up driving like 130 or 200, sometimes more than that. And that's what you got to do. If you want to find your own spot for anything, for deer, for turkeys, for fish, we'll get into fish in a second. If you want to find your own spot, you need to put in your time. It's hours on the boots or it's hours in the truck. And it's usually both. And that's why, you know, most of you, most of you listening to this understand this. That's why when someone asks me where my mushroom spots are, I'll tell them sort of, yeah, it's in the Sierra Nevada at 3000 feet. That's as much as I'm going to give you. And, and that's generous. Most mushroom hunters won't even do that. Where'd you hunt deer? Oh, the D zone. Which one? Uh, D5. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you exactly where, especially if it's on public ground, because it is very difficult to find a really good spot for deer in my area on public land that is even remotely near a trailhead. You really do have to hike into the backcountry in the national forests here in the Sierra Nevada to find a spot where you are A, likely to find bucks, and B, not likely to find a ton of other human beings. So, you know, needless to say, if I'm going to spend this much, I mean, translate it for a second. Think about it. Just just stop and think. Okay. I just spent, let's say, three tanks of gas, $120, more or less. Endless numbers of hours. Lunches, you got to eat, you got to drink when you're on there. All just to find a spot that I think might be good. And I'm gonna just going to tell you this. Because, you know, you bought me a beer or you just dropped me a note on an email and I don't even know you, or even if I do, no way, no way. I mean, there's a, there's a huge etiquette to it. Now, case in point, I got a chance to hunt turkeys with a reader of mine. Um, he, I put it out there that I'm having a terrible turkey season and I am still haven't gotten on a turkey yet. And he said, yeah, I got a spot come on out with me. And it was cool because this guy, his name is TJ and he lives in Placerville, which is very close to me. Sweet. Let's do it. So I, I drove up to his place, you know, met him for the first time in the, you know, early, early morning in the dark. And we drove to his spot and he's super generous. He'd say, yeah, yeah, you can come to this particular spot if you ever want, you know, no problem, but I won't because it's just not right. I don't feel right about it. If I do want to go there, because we did see grouse at this spot and I'm kind of obsessed with grouse. If I do go to that, I'm going to tell him, Hey, TJ, I want to go to your spot. And if he says, okay, I'll go. But if he doesn't, I won't because it's his spot. He spent the effort to find it. And that's the etiquette. If I take you 
somewhere, or if anybody takes you to their spot, you don't have rights to that spot. And you sure as hell don't have rights to tell your friends where that spot is. It is, I've seen friendships end over this. I mean, I'm serious. This is serious stuff. You think about a duck marsh. I mean, I hunt ducks a lot. And I have hunt ducks a lot in public areas in free roam, which means you can go to any patch of reeds you want to go to. And certain patches of reeds are better than others. Now imagine how you scout that. The only way you do it is by spending long days in the marsh. Because you can't scout at four in the morning. It's not going to work. You got to know where your spot is and you got to go to your spot and put your decoys out and stake your flag right there. And if it's no good, well, you screwed up. You can always move and that's part of how do you scout ducks. If you're in a marsh there where the ducks want to be, you can move over to where the ducks want to be. Now, if there's somebody already there, well, you, you can't, but that's essentially how to do it. And the only way to do it is to look day after day after day, because guess what? I'm convinced that the ducks have a meeting sometime around like, okay, this is, it sounds woo woo juju, but think about it before, like when you're setting up in the duck blind, it's way before shoot time. You know, that's probably about, I don't know, two hours, an hour and a half, two hours before shoot time. You start hearing the marsh wake up. You start hearing ducks, lots of ducks. I can't tell you how many times I've heard a, just a symphony of pintails and widgeons and mallards and gadwalls and teal all talking to each other or talking amongst themselves at least way before shoot time. I got to think that this is, they're talking about where they want to go today. I mean, maybe not biologically, but it sure seems like that. Because guess what? You watch. And they're all bombing into that place over there. Or if you're extremely lucky, they're bombing into your pond. And if that's the case, that's one of those days you'd need to just remember and write it down because it doesn't happen that often. But that's the thing. There are going to be places where the ducks will want to go more often than not. And more often, there's going to be places where the ducks choose a flyway. And again, only the ducks know why they choose to fly X particular line or not. So that gives you the opportunity to pass shoot them. But who knows where it is? The only way you know is by putting in the time. You know, we spent days, whole days in the marsh, dawn to dusk, in this particular spot, looking. And sometimes we got ducks. I mean, we always got some ducks, but sometimes we got limits. And sometimes we just, you know, used it as a scouting day. And that's the thing. I didn't get any morels when I went earlier this year. But that's fine. The reason is... I now know that those spots are no good for habitat. And I now know that there is pretty good habitat for a couple of wild things that I'm looking for, like uh, native blackberries and white stem raspberries are, are in this particular area. And there's a lot of yerba santa, which is a medicinal herb. So, so it wasn't totally useless. And that's the thing. If you're walking the prairie or walking your woods or, or checking out the Adirondacks, you know, this is all useful. It builds that huge area in your brain of memory. Now, again, I'm going to return to this, write it down because your memory is good, but it's not perfect. So for example, if I'm, I, I need to write down that I went down this road and that road and that road, and Hey, it's mostly private and Hey, it's terrible morel habitat, but there's all kinds of native blackberries and native white, white stem raspberries. And there's yerba Santa and blah, blah, blah. So it, it, it had a purpose. It had some use. 
And I also know in the place with the fur tips and the ginger, hey, I don't care what it is. Early April's too early. Duly noted, right? So here's the thing. You will eventually develop this encyclopedic, kaleidoscopic mental image of your world. Whether you're in Montana or in New York or in a suburb or you are anywhere, you develop this kind of mental map of time and space that makes you a better forager, makes you a better hunter. And I want to talk now about angling. The water's a little different. It's really important for you to learn a patch of ground, a patch of water in this case. Why? The reason is if you learn a patch of water, you become, as an angler, the way a good hunter is on the land. So case in point, 90% of the anglers that I know, all they are are rods. That's all they are. They don't know how to find fish. Some of them don't even know how to bait hooks. Some of them don't know which bait to go or what time to go or whatever, whatever. They don't know the spot. And I'm guilty of this. I don't know. I don't know my own waters as well as I should, partially because I don't own a boat, which is, you know, a boat is a hole in the water to which you throw money, but it's also how you learn a piece of ground unless you have the opportunity to rent a boat or to just be a bank fisherman. When I lived in Virginia, I was a hell of a bank fisherman on the Rappahannock outside of Fredericksburg. I would almost always catch fish. I mean, it does help the fact that, you know, if it comes, <laughs> if, it, if it bites my rod, it's going to get eaten, whether it's a, a, a dace or an eel or a white bass or herring or shad or a striper. Uh, I'm pretty ecumenical about what I eat. But I knew where to go. I knew where the sunken logs were. I knew where the rapids were. I knew the little rivulets and the holes. My point is, the water is just the land that has water over it. So fish relate to structure. Fish relate to temperature gradients. Fish relate to current breaks. All of these things matter. And you're not going to catch fish or crabs or whatever if you don't find the right habitat. And the way you find the right habitat is put your time in. I mean, the reason why most people fish with guides or charter captains is because it's virtually impossible to put in the kind of time in the ocean that you would need to do to be consistently successful unless you are on the ocean all the time. And how many people are? If you are and you're listening to this, God bless you. I used to be. I used to live on Long Island and I used to be on the water four days a week. And then I knew the Gray South Bay and I knew Fire Island Inlet, Shinnecock Inlet super well. I know that area still, unless it's changed a lot, which it probably has with the storms. But that's the thing. I knew that maybe Tuesday in May, when the current's like this and the moon's like that, that's the time to be out for striped bass where you can catch him 40, 50 pounds. It's not the Saturday that you have off. And that's the thing. If you know that, it makes you a very powerful angler. And how do you do it? You know, you just get out there. It doesn't, you don't need a boat. And I, and I, and I mentioned the river fishing and that's important. But the other thing equally true is I used to fish a place called Mott's Run Reservoir in Spotsylvania County, Virginia. It's a, it's a nice big reservoir. I mean, it's not gigantic, but it's nice. And what's cooler is that you can rent little boats that have trolling motors on them and explore the reservoir yourself. So I used to do this all the time, you know, several days a week. And I knew that reservoir like the back of my hand. I knew little coves. I knew times when the bluegills were spawning. I knew when the white bass would be running like wolves on the surface in, in late summer evenings. 
I knew where the catfish were. I knew where the pickerel were. And that made me a better fisherman. It was the first time since I'd lived on Long Island that I knew a piece of water. And it felt empowering. And I hate to use that word, but it just, it just make, it makes you feel powerful, capable, confident. You don't have to learn every piece of water because that's impossible. You spend all your time on various pieces of water and you know them all imperfectly. What I suggest is scout a piece of water near you that has a fish that you like to eat. It's simple if you think of it that way. Maybe it's a pond for white bass or bluegills. Maybe it's a river for shad or stripers or salmon. Maybe it's a, an icy lake for walleye or pike. Maybe it's you know your coastal waters for rockfish or black sea bass or drum. Pick a fish that floats your boat and make it your target and be a very good that fisherman. Like a very good, I'm, I fish stripers better than most people I know, or I fish bluegills or I fish catfish or whatever. Pick that and be really good at that and then use a guide for other stuff because, you know, that's how we as humans get smarter because we rely on each other's expertise. So I don't want to keep you too long because it's just me talking and I'm deeply cognizant of listening to my own voice for half an hour or 45 minutes or whatever, but scouting matters. And I want to urge you to become an expert at some piece of land that's near you. And here's why. If you can capably, confidently guide a friend on ducks or morels or bluegill or whatever it is, then you have currency in this wild food world of ours. You can give back and not just take. And it's extremely important to do that. Everybody here listening to this knows someone who takes, 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 and they never take you out. They never offer anything. Now, they may pay for things. And that's nice. That's something. And that's okay if you're a really busy individual. But if you can return a favor by saying, oh, yeah, I'll take you out morel hunting if you took me turkey hunting, or I'll take you out on my boat and we'll go catch rockfish if you, you know, show me how to pick, you know, X, Y, or Z. Well, that's, that's a better relationship. And the only way that you can do that is to scout, is to get out there. It gets you fit intimately connects you to your own environment. You get to know your trees and your mushrooms and your piece of water and your river and all that stuff. And it becomes much more a part of your daily life rather than an alien place that you enter into only when you are seeking whatever it is that you hunt or fish or pick or forage. And that's a good thing because the wild places, and I use the word wild in a in a relative sense, because many of the places that I hunt are not truly wild, but they're at least in nature, they're getting smaller and smaller. And we need to do what we can to preserve them. And if you have this sort of ownership, well, that's my plum tree, or that's my stretch of river, or that's my prairie where I hunt deer, even though it's not technically yours, maybe it's another landowner's, maybe it's public, but you have mental ownership of it. You will care more about it. And that's deeply important. Because if it comes time to defend it, You'll not only know it better, you'll be cognizant of, the, of any threat to it because you'll see first. Well, that's your thought for today. Get out there, put some boots on the ground, put some miles on the truck, and learn your spots. Get more spots. Aim to have a new spot every time you go out, even if it's a spot you know not to go to. It'll get you into the environment, and it will get you more connected to this world that we live in. Thanks a lot for listening. I'm Hank Shaw. And this is Hunt, Gather, Talk. As always, 
If you like this episode or like this series, please subscribe to it via Stitcher or iTunes. And for more information, check out Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. That is my website. That is honest-food.net. That will have all kinds of show notes for this, including more details about everything that I've talked about. And it will also introduce you to the internet's largest source of wild food recipes. Once more, I'm Hank Shaw. This is Hunt, Gather, Talk, and thank you for listening.